It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of being on pastoral staff here at Wellspring. Uh, If you're wondering where everyone is, uh, there's a lot of people that we just came, we were just camping. So we had our church uh, camp. That's not right, not church camp. We went camping as a church, uh, and there was like 70 of us. I got the short stick and had to drive back. Aaron and his family are having a good old time, but... It was a blast. It was like, you know, sometimes you go on a camping trip and you expect to like eat terribly. The person next to us brought like a full-on grill and had like 10 pounds of ribs and we're like, here you go. And I was like, oh my gosh. I went camping and ended up eating better than I normally do. It was awesome. Um, Anyway, so that's why we don't have uh, kids ministry just for kids five and under. So if you uh, want to send your kid over there, I think most of them are over. Um, But anyway, it's good to be with you. And uh, that's why today's a little bit different. Now, uh, over the last four weeks, if you've been with us, we've been going through different practices, right? We've been basically Genesis. We started in January and been working our way through. We just finished uh, Joshua. And then we started uh, going through different practices shaped by our discipleship acronym called ABLE. So, attend. What does it look like to just spend time with Jesus, listening to His voice? Bless, blessing people inside and outside the church, learn, learning from the Scriptures, and eat. And each time we've been sort of emphasizing different rhythms, practices, and habits. Uh, Now, today, this is our final message focused on what does it look like to really practice the way of Jesus anchored in Abel. But next week, we're going to start in Judges, and then we'll work our way through there, then we'll do some Advent, and then we'll be in 1 Samuel starting in January. So that's sort of the, the little arc. But this morning, I wanted to start with, why are we talking about habits? And I think the anchoring reason is, I don't know, who here feels like life is a little bit complex? A couple of us, right? Who feels like life can be a little disorienting? Things are constantly changing. And the question is, how do we, in the midst of a life that is complex, that is constantly changing, we're always in transition, how do we remain grounded in Jesus when the context and environment around us is always shifting? I was at a, um, a conference, and Mark Laberton, who's the president of Fuller, was there. This was before the pandemic. And he talked about the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. Right? There's all these rhythms and practices that are baked into our cultural moment that shape and form us, and especially, right, if we're not paying attention, we just start getting shaped and formed into the image of our culture rather than Jesus. I was reading a tech article uh, a few weeks ago, and they talked about how 80% of people go to bed at night with their phone literally right next to them. Right? And that forms us into a people that when the first thing we do when we wake up is we grab this device that is shaped by engineers in Silicon Valley to tell us what's going on in the world. Right? That's a habit and a practice that shapes and forms us into a particular type of people. Distraction is always within literally, you know, arm's reach. So I want to begin this morning by setting the context of what it would look like to be a disciple of Jesus in the first century. And I want to do this by creating a contrast between what it might be to be a disciple of Jesus in contrast to other models of rabbinic discipleship in the first century. So in the first century, if you're a little Jewish boy and you want to uh, become a rabbi, you start in school. 
And this school is meant to teach you in the Hebrew Scriptures. And basically, you show up on that first day, and they will put a little honey on the back of your hand, and they'll ask you to lick it, and then they'll quote uh, Psalm 19, 103, how sweet are your words, O Lord, right? Sweeter than honey. And then you'll be thrown into a rigorous educational system, and if you're not quite smart enough, not good at memorizing the Scriptures, you will quickly be kicked out. So, such that by middle school, almost all of the boys and girls are doing trades or part of their families, right? And it's only the best of the best that make it into high school, right? These are the kids that are memorizing huge swaths of the Old Testament, right? And then when they graduate from high school, right, only the best of the best of the best, the smartest, the cream of the crop have made it there, And often when we read the Gospels, we think, oh, Jesus says, come and follow me. But actually, almost all models of discipleship in the first century, you went to a rabbi and asked if you could follow them. It's kind of like maybe the modern equivalent is you want to become an expert in microbiology. And you're thinking, oh, the only way to do that is I need to get a PhD, right? So then you apply to Harvard or Stanford or Cambridge or whatever, and you're like, accept me into your program. And they're like, yeah, we'll accept 1% of students. I realize you were the best at your high school or your master's degree, but we only take the best. That's first century rabbinic discipleship. Only the best of the best of the best are accepted once they go to a rabbi and the rabbi says, okay, you can follow me. And then what happens is it's not just mind transfer. He doesn't give you just a bunch of books to read. There's this great line um, in the first century that says this, walk in the dust of your rabbi and be covered in the dust of his feet. You need to imagine this, right? So this isn't like, I don't know, Ireland and a bunch of green grass, right? This is a dust, dirt, culture, you're walking around in sandals, and you want to be walking so close to the rabbi that as he flicks his sandal up, the dust comes off of his sandal and onto your legs. Be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea is that it's not just a mind transfer. It's not just getting his information into your head. This is a full life discipleship. Literally, there are prayers. Oh, what does your rabbi say when he goes to the bathroom? Oh, you better say that prayer. Every element of life, you are trying to be your rabbi, not simply know what he knows. That's first century rabbinic discipleship. Now, let's consider Jesus. Right? Only the best of the best. Now imagine, you're just, you know, you dropped out, fourth grade, fifth grade, second grade, whatever, you've been doing trades for a long time, you know, you just, you weren't quite good enough at memorizing the Old Testament. And this rabbi comes along who has this big following and people are talking about him and he says this to you, come to me, all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice just the first word there, it come to me. Jesus does not wait for people to come to him. He doesn't just accept the cream of the crop, the best of the best, those who are, you know, ready for a PhD in rabbinic discipleship. He's the only rabbi in the first century who calls disciples to himself. It's an open invite. You don't need to have particular credentials. You don't have a particular resume. He actually invites the weary and the burdened, not the best of the best. This is why when you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus go up to fishermen like Peter and John, and he's like, follow me, and they're like, yes! And we wonder why. They've just won the first century lottery. Only the best ever got to follow a rabbi. So they're like, fishing? Forget about it. I have dreamed as a five-year-old boy in Israel of following a rabbi. You know, I just wasn't smart enough. Now he's asking me? I'm in. It isn't interesting, though, that Jesus says he's not interested in burdening his disciples. Right? He wants to bring us rest He's quite critical, actually, of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who in Jesus' words, he says, they, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The Pharisees in the first century had 613 commandments that you were supposed to rock. Jesus says, come to me. I like how Eugene Peterson translates uh, Matthew 11 in the message. He says this, are you tired? Are, Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Right? For Jesus, discipleship starts with coming to him. Right? Getting away with him. Tasting the sweet honey that they tasted on the back of their hands when they were five years old. He's like, yeah, let's get back to that. He starts with coming away, but then he gets this idea of a yolk. I don't know about you, the last time I thought about a yolk was an egg, right? Like, when else is yolk ever used in modern life? This is what Jesus says, verse 29. Take my egg yolk, no, just take my yolk upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Right, but what does this mean? Well, there's really two ways in first century that this idea of yoke was used. Um, and these are sort of historical and contextual applications. One is an animal yoke. I think we have a picture of it. So this is sort of often what we imagine when we think of Jesus and yoke, right? So you have two oxen. One is older and one is younger. And what you do is you attach them both into the same yoke. And what the older one does is train the younger one how to do the work. Secondly, the older one is stronger so he can bear more of the load. So he actually carries the load, enabling the younger oxen to be able to move and do the work. And then what happens? As that younger one learns and grows, then he eventually becomes an older one and trains someone else. 
The human yoke is another way that the yoke was used in the first century. This is an, an example of that. When you kind of get this idea, right? So the human yoke basically goes on the shoulders and allows you to carry things basically with your skeletal system and your legs and your back and your shoulders um, versus imagine trying to carry two buckets like this with your fingers. You can carry it for a while, but your fingers are going to fatigue way faster than your shoulders, your traps, and your legs. So the human yoke enables you to carry more for longer, to do more than you were capable of doing before. Make sense? Those are two first century contextual and historical applications of yoke. Now, scholars are really divided, honestly, about which one Jesus is talking about. And they both have, they both get at similar things, but they have maybe slightly different emphasis. The animal yoke has a more relational emphasis. You're shoulder to shoulder. You're learning from someone else. And there's this beautiful sense of we're walking with Jesus. He's carrying more of the load, but he's with us, training us how to do his thing. Not just know what he knows, but live how he lives. The human yoke, right, also has some advantages. What it basically is telling us at a sort of elemental level is that the human yoke enables us to do more than we could before. Right, so that's what the yoke does. It enables you to do what you could not do previously. Both of them point to the reality of Jesus calls us to himself. He calls us to learn from him and then do something, not just believe, do something. And he enables us in either model to do more than we could previously. Right, there's this transformational element in both as they both learn a capacity, a way of being that is different. And yet, in both, if we're honest, we could also imagine both of these being really unpleasant and exhausting. Right? And yet, what does Jesus say? It's fascinating. Take my yoke upon you. What do you do then? You learn from me. And then what do you do? What do you find? Rest. Wait, what? Yoke, learn, rest. It should be like, yoke, learn, exhausted, panting on the floor. That's not what he says. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says that he came to give us life, abundant life. So Jesus' goal, actually through apprenticeship, through taking on the yoke, is that we find rest and life. But I think too often we interpret discipline or discipleship through like these really negative paradigms of this terrible taskmaster whose only goal is to like squeeze every amount of our productivity out of us. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He wants us to rest. He wants us to experience life. He is not there to milk every, you know, ounce of our energy and productivity and efficiency out of us. I, uh, whenever I read this passage, I think of, who here has been like backpacking? Like had to carry a backpack somewhere? A few of you, all right. When you go backpacking, you know, and especially you're going for a few days and you're going to cover a lot of miles, you, the first day you put on that backpack, you're like, this is heavy. You know, and then two or three days into it, you've eaten a lot of the food, which is where a lot of the, the uh, well, and water if you don't have access to water. But, you're, it's, you know, that's a lot of your weight. And two or three days in, you're like, oh, this feels so much 
better. Right? Because all of us want, in life and backpacking, an easy and a light load. Like, no one's like, give me more. Right? And Jesus says in verse 30, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Right? It's not heavy. It's not cumbersome. And this flows actually from his character. When we sort of put on this mean taskmaster, I don't know, for me, I imagine my football coach in high school who would just yell and yell and yell at us. When we put that on top of Jesus, we, uh, we forget that it's Jesus' character that shapes what it looks like to wear his yoke. And Jesus says super clearly, right, that, his, that he is gentle and humble in heart. Verse 29. He's not like the other rabbis around him. Matthew 23, uh, Jesus says about the other rabbis in the first century, everything they do is for people to see. Right? They love the place of honor at banquets, the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. Right? They love to have this sense of power. And that filters into the way they treat their disciples, their apprentices. Jesus isn't like this at all. I like, again, how Eugene Peterson translates this passage in the message. He says this. This is how, Je- this is how he articulates Jesus, right? Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I love that line of Peterson's. Unforced rhythms of grace. And it's unforced rhythms of grace, right? Because we are submitting our lives before Jesus. We're letting go. Right? We're not mustering up. We're not trying to earn. We're not ramping up like a Braveheart speech or a football sermon, right? We are letting go. We're submitting. We're taking Jesus' yoke and saying, okay, I'll follow you. I'll do what you do. Right now, as we do this, His grace transforms us from the inside out. It isn't about performance. It's not being about the best of the best of the best. Right? It's about letting go and learning from Jesus and allowing His habits, His rhythms to transform us by His grace. Too often, though, when we lean into doing stuff, we focus on practices, habits, rhythms, disciplines. We like to, like, take credit, like we're earning something. Like, aren't I an awesome Christian? Because I pray every day, I read my Bible, I do X, Y, Z, like, I am awesome. Dallas Willard has this great quote. He says this, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. I'm going to say it again. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Yes, we are supposed to take Jesus' yoke upon us and learn from Him. But it's by God's grace that we're transformed into Jesus' image. It's not because of our heroic action. It's because of His grace. 
but it does require effort. So while Jesus does reject a lot of first century patterns for discipleship, especially that you have to be the best of the best, that you have to have this awesome resume self to present to Jesus and say, take me. But he does still emphasize it's not just a mind transfer. It is about us following, doing something. Right? It is about us taking on his yoke, which is symbolic of his teaching and his way of life. And it does require some effort. But for Jesus, it is all about the fact that we might find rest for our souls. It is all about the fact that he wants to give us life, and he actually thinks this is the way to do it. Now, I want to unpack two different things, especially uh, as we go forward. So that's sort of the broad overview. I want to dive into two, specifically the connection between rest and training and habits and the heart. Because I think these are two things that we get kind of confused on often in modern life. The first is rest and training. So when Jesus talks about rest, he's not talking about like grab a pina colada and chill out on the beach in Thailand. I mean, sounds good, but that's not exactly what he is in mind. For Jesus, rest is about aligning with God's vision for human flourishing. And when we do that, when we have that alignment, we experience rest. Right? His yoke, his training, his, it shapes us over time into kingdom shape where true life is experienced. Right? True rest and peace are found when we're living in alignment with God and his vision for the universe. We're going with the grain of the universe, Stanley Hauerwas says. Donald Hagner in the Word Biblical Commentary says, the fact that Jesus' yoke is kind and his burden is light must not be misunderstood to mean that discipleship and righteousness to which Jesus calls us are easy and undemanding. Right? For Jesus, he says, right, the way is easy that leads to destruction, not rest. Right? The way of least resistance isn't the way of Jesus. That is the way of the culture in which you live. The easy way is always in line with the world, the culture in which we live. Adopting Jesus' yoke actually requires us to lay down our own agendas and adopt Jesus' training plan. Now, in my personal experience and as a pastor, I've seen sort of Christians in their relationship to Jesus' training plan sort of go four different ways. Way one. We just don't do it. We think, you know, I raised my hand at this worship thing when I was 13. I got my ticket to heaven and I'm good. I I just think we need to be honest. I think for a lot of us, we just don't do it. Life is too overwhelming. It's too complex. We're tired. Time always feels like it's against us. And what happens is we're always looking for Jesus' rest but we rarely find it because we assume that we should get Jesus' rest without following Jesus' training. It's like the person who goes to a personal trainer at the gym. The personal trainer writes them this plan and gives it to them, and they're like, yes, this is awesome. They go home, they come back the next week, and they're like, so, did you do your training plan? Nope. Are you getting stronger? Nope. 
you know, trainer, I need to get stronger. I want to get more fit. Okay, here's the plan. And week after week, they don't do the plan, and then they get frustrated. They come back to the trainer, and they're like, why am I not getting more fit? Why am I not getting stronger? Are you doing any of the things I said? No. I think, and it's silly when I say it like that, but I feel like we do this all the time. Two, I think we go, the other option is we go like all or nothing, right? We're like, I'm going to change everything. And we like read the Bible for three hours in the morning and then we're like hosting stuff at night and we're blessed bringing cookies and stuff to our neighbor and we're, you know, whatever, I could go on for a while. And we burn ourselves out in two weeks and we're like, I guess it didn't work. I'm not experiencing rest. I'm not experiencing the life Jesus gave us. Again, back to the gym. I have a good friend who um, is a personal trainer. He says he makes like 80% of his money in the first month of January. Because people buy their year pass, they go to the gym hardcore for two weeks, and they're like, whew, that was hard. I'm really sore. I think I'm done. And we kind of do this with Jesus. We go all or nothing, and we assume, just like the person who goes for two weeks to the gym, like, I'm going to be ripped and huge after two weeks. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Or option three. We do the same thing every day with very little variety. And we get stuck in these spiritual ruts. Right? Like the person who goes to the gym, hops on the same three machines, never increases weight never increases sets, you know, they're like, yeah, so how many did you do? I don't know. I did about 10 today, but they could have done 40, right? Muscles need some challenge to grow. They need to be progressively overload. That's how muscles work. Same with spiritually. We need, we cannot just stay in the same rut and expect to grow, right? This is one of the reasons we talk about discipleship acronyms like ABLE, because my guess is some of us are awesome at like one or two of the ABLE disciplines, we think, oh, yeah, every morning I pray and I read my Bible. Awesome. You're rocking it. That's so good. What about community? What about blessing and loving your neighbor? What about God's justice and mercy? Do you ever work on those? No, I, I just read my Bible and I pray every morning. That's awesome. But Jesus' training plan is not simply those two practices. And we get stuck in these ruts when we ignore the whole training plan of God. Or four. Right? This is, I would consider, more like Jesus training or adopting a Jesus yoke, right? This is an engaged process. This is not just, I did my assignment for the day. It's an engaged process, a dynamic process that's over the long haul. The goal is not to work out for two weeks. The goal is to be a person that is shaped by Jesus over a lifetime. That shifts and adapts based on God's gracious will and invitation. Right? That changes based on your season of life, what's going on in your life, what you need. Right? When you go to the gym and a personal trainer hands you a plan, they don't just say, here you go, see you in five years. Right? They give you a plan and when you plateau, they adjust it to adjust maybe weaknesses in your life. God does this with us. When we're listening and we're attuned, we're paying attention to, oh, I should probably adjust here. Oh, spirit, you're saying over here? Okay, good. 
It's a dynamic relational connection over the long haul where we're learning habits and practices that meet us in different seasons of life. All right, so that's training and rest. What about habits and heart? So whenever my experience, whenever we start talking about habits or disciplines, uh, we also start talking about behavior and action. And then we can easily fall into this standard of creating like performance standards for behavior. And then we start doing something like this. Well, I do this, this, and this. I'm pretty awesome. You don't do this, this, and this. You, you need some help. And we don't always do this consciously. But there's this subterranean temptation to make our behavior the litmus test of our worth. And we see this in the first century. Uh, if you go, you know, if, if we were to teleport back in the first century in uh, Palestine, what you'd see is the Pharisees start to elevate certain behaviors above others so that they could really clearly say who's in and who's out. And you see this, it becomes shapes much of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees in the first century, right? They focus on circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, so that they can easily say, you need help, you're okay. I'm okay, you're not, right? External boundary markers of belonging so they can say, oh yeah, you're good, or you're not. A few years back, I had this goal of trying to like read and pray every day through a calendar year. And tell me if you've ever had this experience. I was doing pretty well for a while, and then eventually I started caring a little bit more about the check mark that like I did the thing than the thing itself. And I started, it started with this hope that God would transform my heart, and eventually it became something of like, just read the verse and say thank you so you can get your check mark and be done. I turned a beautiful thing into something that was really just about keeping my ego inflated about my streak, you know? I'm the only one? No? <laughs> Fair enough. The thing is, Jesus often challenged the religious leaders of his day on this external focus on behavior. Matthew 23, 25-26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, clean first the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. Jesus is like, don't just focus on your external behavior, what's outside. Pay attention to what's inside as well. Be aware of your hearts. Right? Habits without a heart focus in the end really quickly become pointless. I mean, think about it using Jesus' analogy. Great, the outside of the cup looks great, but where do you pour the coffee and tea? The inside. Who wants to drink coffee and tea in a disgusting inside of a cup? You pour that out. And with that said, I would say, when habits are adopted with a heart focus in mind, when habits are about letting go and allowing our hearts to be shaped by Jesus' spoken voice, really good stuff happens. When we set aside our agendas and we're willing to learn from Jesus, 
His grace works powerfully in us to actually change us from the inside out. Right? When we adopt behaviors and we carry those behaviors because Jesus has said, hey, focus on this. He's put the spotlight on that. And we're willing to let that spotlight not just be on our behavior, but actually lead all the way into our hearts. Really good stuff happens. J.K. Smith has this quote. He says this, the orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. Sometimes we think that desire precedes habit, but it doesn't often. Often, we start reading the Scriptures, we adopt a practice, and it shapes our desire. Right? That's why Jesus cares so much about us taking His yoke, learning from Him, but then in the process, allowing that grace to transform us from the inside out. Because as we adopt the yoke, our hearts are changed. Right? Practice is what forms us into loving people. We don't just do it naturally. I think about this, uh, just a specific practice for me, it relates to like money and generosity. I share about this regularly because it's very easy for me uh, because I am not a naturally generous person. You set me in the world, anywhere, without Jesus, I will hoard money so that I never have to depend on any of you or God. I will. I will do it because you know what? I don't trust you to care for me. And I don't trust God to care for me. It's only been taking on Jesus' yoke and learning about generosity. Actually, the practice of giving has made me into the kind of person who can actually trust God more fully. This is the crazy part. Jesus says, take my yoke, learn from me, and what will you get? Rest. I can tell you over the last 20 years, as I have learned to give my money to God's work in the world, I have more rest because I am not so anxious about whether I will be able to provide everything I need. As I have learned, taken on Jesus' yoke and learned from Him, and I've learned how to give, I have actually experienced more life and more rest because I know, God, you are there. I do not have to fend and hoard and anxiously strive to provide because, God, you are good. You are gentle and humble in heart, and you want good things for me. And as I let go, take on your yoke, you make me into the kind of person I was made to be. And as I get there, I experience more life and more freedom. I'm less oppressed by the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture, the tyranny that just wants to dominate us, the sin that just wants to strangle us. This is why at Wellspring we talk about Abel so often. This is why, right, for the last five weeks we've talked about these practices. It's why on our website there's 16 more and videos and PDFs and experiments you can do because Jesus wants us to be transformed. And he's really clear that the best way to get the rest and the life that we want is actually to take his yoke. 
to let go, to submit to him. And as we do that, not with all this list of agendas, but submitting and listening to his voice, being able to change over time and listen and say, all right, God, I'm going to do that. We're transformed into his likeness. All right, so what do we do today then? We walk into this place, you know, some dude on a stage talks about habits and you're like, okay, now what? You know, what do we do with this? My experience is that almost all of us are a little lopsided. My guess is if we went around this room, every single one of us could identify one or two practices that like we could do without ever thinking about it. They just come naturally to us. And there's one or two that are like, I have to do that? For instance, some of us are awesome at like taking time to Sabbath and rest in Jesus. But then maybe we're really bad at like loving our neighbors and really paying attention to what God is doing in our workplaces and on our streets. Others of us are love hanging out in community. You guys are going to rock community. You're going to eat and hang out and high five and pray for each other. But you haven't picked up and read your Bible in a month. I know there's people in this room that love the mission of God. You're constantly sharing about Jesus. You're blessing people. But you have not taken time to Sabbath and rest and slow down and listen to the speaking voice of God in months. In my experience, most of us are awesome at one or two of the practices. And we're pretty weak at a couple of the others. Uh, There's this great book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. It's kind of this fun book on how do you create practices. It's really grounded in research. And he says, if we want to start new habits, right? So if you come in here today and God shines a spotlight on a particular area of your life and you're like, oh, maybe I should work on that. (laughs) How would you start? James Clear gives us a few things. First, he says this. One, start really, really small. Too often we try and do way too much, really too quickly, and we burn out, we get frustrated. He says, start small, right? This the classic example is the gym in January. Don't start in January going to the gym for an hour a day. Maybe just drive to the parking lot and go home. (laughs) The idea is to make it so easy, it requires almost no effort. So willpower is like a muscle. Like there's tons of research into this. And it fatigues the more you use it throughout the day. It actually kind of ebbs and flows. There's this guy named B.G. Fogg, who's a Stanford professor, and he says, he kind of calls it a motivation wave. So it goes like this. And you, you probably know this in life. Some days, you know, you're high and some days you're lower. The thing is, often we make habit changes when we're at the top of the wave. And we assume, we sort of have this weird fantasy thing where we think, I'm always going to be at this level forever now. But we're not. The idea is to change habits based on your bottom of the wave. The smallest change that you can sustain at the bottom of the motivation wave. So if you want to form a new habit, base it on the bottom of the motivation wave, not the top. I'll give you an example. This spring, 
I was having so much like pain in, I was a pain in my own neck. And um, I was getting these headaches and it was really a pain. It was not fun. And I knew I needed to change something about like the way I was exercising just to loosen that space. So what I did, I have this rhythm in every morning where I go downstairs and I read uh, this, this season I'm in Romans. I'm just in the scriptures. And then literally like six feet away is my workout area. So what I said was, this is my small change. All I'm going to do after I am done reading the scripture is I'm just going to warm up and then I'll be done. That's what I did. For two weeks, I just went over and I just warmed up. And then I was done. Step two. We often need a reminder that acts as a clue. Right? This is, basically, let, let me just sort of like, a clue is something that clues you into, now it's time to do the habit. Let me step back for a second and explain this. So we all have patterns in everyday life. You wake up, you shower, you eat, I don't know, you get changed, I'm making, missing up the order. But anyway, the point is we all do things every day that we're used to. And the key when you form a new habit is to latch the new habit onto a constant habit you already have. Does that make sense? So for me, I already was going downstairs to read the scriptures. So what I did was, as soon as I closed my Bible, I saw my workout space. I already have the moment. I've already gotten there. I'm already within sight of it. I just walk over and I do my warm-up. So I attach my new habit to a former habit that I already have ingrained. Does that make sense? So whenever you're starting a new habit, you latch it on to a previously established habit. Maybe it's your coffee in the morning. Maybe you take the dog for a walk. Maybe your kids scream at you when you wake up in the morning. You're like, all right, time to read my Bible, you know? It doesn't matter what it is, but it should be previously in existence. It shouldn't be something you're having to just sort of remind yourself. You should already have a habit that pre-reminds you. Then, step three, you increase the habit in tiny ways over time. So for me, my warm-up slowly became warm-up plus one exercise. Warm-up plus one exercise and another exercise. And over a few months, I build it up to a warm-up plus an actual workout. But we rarely do this. Do you notice how, like, methodical this is? Fourth, you should probably track your progress. So as you're increasing, you want to track your progress, right? We measure what we care about. So for me, I just put a, a calendar on my wall, and I just put a red X for every day that I went and did my warm-up. And what it does, because cognitively what often happens when you start a new habit is you think you've been doing it for six months, and it's been three days. <laughs> you're like, oh, I've been reading my Bible, I'm rocking it. You know, and you look back, you're like, oh, I have two X's. That means I started it two days ago on Monday. But we have this weird thing. We start something for like a week, and we feel like we've done it forever. And then conversely, when you stop doing it for a day or two, you feel like you've stopped doing it forever. Did I even do that practice? What the calendar does is it reminds you if you stop doing it, oh, it's only been a day. Who cares? Start my little mark again. But it keeps us going. And truthfully, if you're at all like me, seeing that little X is like deeply pleasurable. It's like, oh, another X. Yes, you know. Fifth, we got to be patient. 
we often think that change happens really quickly, but when we're talking about matters of the heart, we're talking about a lifelong journey. This is a long hike through the Sierra Nevadas, not a 100-yard sprint. All right, so then if we apply this to you today, imagine Jesus walked in the room today, right? He is here via the Holy Spirit. And he said to you, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What is he asking you right now to learn? What's the area of your life that's lopsided? that you haven't invested in, that's not really growing or changing. Do you have a sense of what that is? If you don't, it's okay, but I think the first step is to identify what that is. When Jesus says to you, learn from me, what is the specific nuance for you right now? Take a second. Spirit, I just ask you just to reveal to us as we sit in this space an area of our life that you want us to learn from you. Maybe an area that's been unruly, an area that constantly like knocks us out from under our feet, or maybe it's just an area we've been blind to. God, we don't want to just come up with plans. We want our our steps to be informed by your speaking voice. So God, just come and speak to us. Speak to us in this moment. Speak to us throughout this week. Now I recognize that, you know, most of us probably haven't, don't have like a concrete plan in mind. That's okay. That's what worship is for. Um, In a minute, we'll have the worship team come up. But the idea would be, what is that thing? Identify that thing. The second thing would be, what is a tiny step? Worship team can come up, that's fine. What is a small step or tiny change that you can focus on in that area? Three, what can you then attach it to? Right? What habit or practice is already in your life that can remind you that you should do that thing? four, right, gradually start to increase that practice. Five, find a way to track it. And then just don't give up. You know, stick to it. Right, if we were going to apply this, let's say, to Scripture. Let's say God said to you, you should probably start reading your Bible. So what does it look like for you to start really small? Might be just literally like, I'm going to flip open the Bible after I have my coffee every day. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to flip it open. I'm going to flip it open for seven days. And then on the seventh day, maybe you'll increase it. To, you're going to read one line. You're going to flip it open and read one line. You're going to do that for three days. And then you're going to flip it open and read one little section, and then you're going to stay there for three months. Because the thing is, Jesus is not interested in you learning to read 10 paragraphs tomorrow. He wants you to read the scriptures for every day for the rest of your life. 
And if that process of starting takes you a month, who cares? You have 50 years. Operate on a 50-year horizon. God wants to transform you over the next 50 years as you were in those texts. Right? Gradually increase it. Well, as we enter worship, I just want us to be a people at Wellspring that are really thoughtful about Jesus calling us to himself. We are thoughtful that when he calls us to himself, he's not just saying believe the right things, but he wants us to take his yoke on us. Right? He wants us to be the kind of people that learn from him. Not just ideas, but a whole way of life. And his hope is that you and I would experience rest. We would experience life. As we enter worship, I just invite you, just in this moment, as we begin to sing this song, which is just all about Jesus, that that's why you're here. Right? We are here to center and mold our life, shape it on who Jesus is. What he did and how he lived. That's why we're in this place. So Holy Spirit, we do ask you to reveal to us Reveal to us the areas in our lives that you want us to work on. We want to be a people who are not tight-fisted but open-handed to your invitation that we might be transformed in the heart by your grace as you give us habits and practices to learn your way in this world. That we are not just a people that just do what our neighbor does because that's what our culture does, that's what the world does, that's what our flesh wants. We would be a people they're grounded in you. But church, it does start with us saying yes to Jesus. It starts with us saying yes to his yoke. We live in a world that's just shaped by us deciding everything for ourselves. And as we enter worship, I invite you as you sing this song for it to be a confession of trust that Jesus is who you want to put your trust in. Let's stand and worship.